0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta and opposition leader Ryla Odinga are promoting their Building Bridges initiative. Will it continue to political unity or sow more discord? And Cameroon's Anglophone crisis continues to boil. What concessions are necessary to move towards a peaceful settlement? Plus, we discussed the role of legislatures in Africa. What new approaches should we take to strengthen legislative institutions? So whether you have a history with the continent, or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Before we get started, I have an exciting update to share. This year, CSIS Africa is going to record a few episodes of our podcast in front of a live studio audience. Join us for our first live recording on February 14th at the George Washington University. Stay tuned for additional updates by following us at CSIS Africa on Twitter and like us on Facebook. To our subscribers, if you'd like to host an Into Africa episode at your campus or institution, send us an email at africa at CSIS.org. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has signaled his support for the Building Bridges Initiative, or BBI, which calls for the re-establishment of an executive prime minister position amongst other reforms.
1: The Building Bridges Initiative, meant to unify Kenyans, seems to have built a wall instead as debate on the report's recommendations further breaks up the country.
0: Will this initiative transform Kenyan politics for better or for worse? Joining me to discuss BBI and other issues is Ken Apollo, an assistant professor at Georgetown University and the author of Legislative Developments in Africa, Politics and post Legacies. Jeanette Yarwood, the staff director for the Subcommittee on Africa at the U.S. House of Representatives, and Tyler Beckelman, the director of international partnerships at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Tyler was also previously the USAID's field director for Somalia and a former NSC staffer under President Obama. Ken, let me start with you, if you could just set the table. What is the Building Bridges Initiative? What does it mean for Kenyan politics?
1: So the BBI resulted from the quote-unquote handshake between Uhuru Kenyatta and Raila Odinga, the main opposition candidate in the 2017 election. As listeners may know, the 2017 election was disputed between Kenyatta and Odinga, resulted in quite a bit of violence. Odinga swore himself as president outside of constitutional bounds. And so uh, to resolve the ensuing crisis, the two men held talks, had the famous handshake, and the BBI then resulted out of that. The goal of the BBI is to solicit views from Kenyans on what's needed to reform the political system uh, in order
0: to make it more equitable and, and to reduce the tensions that often characterize Kenyan elections. So that's the banner sort of explanation of it. But there's some more like subterranean sort of thinking about it, right? Whether it's a jobs program for Rilo Odinga to take over the prime ministership, and then maybe presidency, and also at least for the perceptions that may be sliding, moving out of the picture, the deputy president, William Ruto, what what's your take on sort of how it may trickle down to those sort of politics? Yes. So, you know, there are two
1: views uh, of the BBI. One is that it's a genuine attempt to resolve tensions around elections. But the second view is that it's an explicit attempt by the families that dominate Kenyan politics to retain power via uh, an alliance around Odinga after Kenyatta retires. And the implication of that would be the sidelining of Deputy President William Ruto.
0: I read the Kenyan newspapers every day. I was in Kenya last year, and this is what everyone talks about, right? I mean, it's crowded out everything. And so I guess I want to bring Tyler in because this is clearly a domestic Kenyan issue. How much space can we do this massive political reformation or resettling or realignment at the same time, have the kind of consistent engagement that the U.S. government and other partners want with Kenya to sort of achieve these other objectives?
2: Thanks for that and, and thanks for having me on. I'm I'm honored to be here with such an excellent panel. First, let me just say that I think there are there are real risks here. As you note, if you read the Kenyan newspapers, BBI is is really sucking a lot of the air out of the conversation in Kenya at the moment. And I think, you know, beyond the sort of, you know, politics and the personalities associated in it, it is a statement about the future of the Kenyan political system in a lot of ways, preferencing Essentially, ethnic power sharing over, you know, potentially issue based politics, and while that may, you know, I think if it if it realizes its objective of bringing more unity in the short term, that's a good thing, but I do think we need to consider the longer term implications of what this means for entrenching corruption and keeping Kenya from moving forward on some of its its biggest challenges. And so, one of the irony of ironies around this whole BBI debate is that it's it's William Ruto who has been pointing out the fact that Kenya's domestic political opposition has essentially decided to take a, if you can't beat them, join them approach mm-hmm. to this rather than, you know, arguing in favor of the issues that Kenyans really, really are concerned about. And in terms of the implications for U.S. interest, right, I mean, I think it's wise that the U.S. has taken a bit of a wait and see approach on this. As you know well, any time that the U.S. you know weighs in on some of these domestic Kenyan political issues, it always gets filtered through a very ethnic lens. We, have the, we have the
0: scars it. on our back from the uh, 2013 election, right?
2: We, we certainly do, and so I think it's wise to to take a wait and see approach and and sort of see how the process plays out. But if there is you know the potential for violence around this, then then obviously that that changes the equation a little bit. Longer term, I think to the extent that the changes that would be implicit in this system reinforce corruption or sort of reinforce or sort of prevent the sort of continued evolution of, of institutions. I think, I think there are real risks in that for, for U.S. interest. It will keep Kenya from becoming a, a solid trading partner or a, a place where you know, international business can, can do real work. And it will increase opportunities for you know, malign influences, whether that's from China or Iran or the Gulf or, or other actors that are seeking to benefit from uh, you know, loose institutions and corruption in the, in the state. So
0: Jeanette, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Kenya has tweeted about BBI a couple of times. He's, I think, been pretty circumspect. He's said BBI must not be hijacked by politics. That was earlier this year. And then uh, last year, he made a couple comments saying, I don't listen, I don't agree with everything in the report, but I do support its commitment to unity. So from your perspective, are there conditions, if any, that the U.S. should weigh in on BBI? How do we sort of navigate this?
3: Thank you for having me here. I think that you know, since when has the U.S. not weighed in? But what I will say is that I've spoken to Kenyans, um, to people inside of Kenya and, and Kenyans here in the U.S. And what I've been told is that the ambassador essentially articulated the feeling on the ground, right? That there is a disconnect between the politicians and the population and that there is concern that um, that the conversation is being hijacked by political elites
0: can help sort us out. What do you think? Or Is the U.S. playing its cards right? What kind of role should it have at all?
1: Um, yeah, I think so far the U.S. is playing its cards right, letting uh, the domestic political economy figure things out. Uh, although I think there's, there's certainly a role for the U.S. government to insist on the intense competition around power and influence uh, for all of that to happen within constitutional bounds. Uh, and if if I could draw a few red lines, I would say that, you know, uh, top of the list should be to protect devolution at all costs, uh, so that, you know, there's not a recentralization of the Kenyan state as part of the whatever reforms may come out of BBI. now as as far as, you know, making it more accessible to the public, you know, if if I'm being realistic, I don't see scope for much input from the public. The nature of Kenyan politics right now is such that, whatever comes out of it, especially because of the alliance that appears to be emerging, right, an alliance between Kenyatta and Odinga is politically unstoppable in many ways. Uh, And so, you know, an honest approach would be to talk to the two men and make sure that, you know, what they come up with, yes, satisfies their interests, but to a large extent also protects Kenyan interests uh, and the interests of the public at large, and, and protects democracy and the many gains Kenya has made since the early 1990s.
0: I think it's a great framework and, and some wise words. Thanks, Ken. Okay, we're going to move to a different topic, which is Cameroon. And I have tried to stay away from Cameroon in most of my engagements here at CSIS. We did a podcast on it back in April of 2019, but it is probably the most charged Topic, I think across sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, you mentioned Cameroon on Twitter and you're just buried with comments on, from both sides that are pretty nasty and negative. But I really do admire, Jeanette, what the House is doing. I mean, Congresswoman Bass and ranking member Smith have regularly elevated this issue, weighed into a really devastating situation. And I was hoping you could just summarize some of the things that the committee has been doing around, around Cameroon.
3: Sure. Um, Cameron does keep me busy, (laughs) very busy lately. Um, You know, Congress is often responding to the diaspora, um, whether it be constituents or just broadly the diaspora, because, um, you know, writ large, a diaspora is is a constituent of the subcommittee. So last Congress, um, the ranking member and the chair um, introduced a bill calling for really um, an end to the violence, respect for human rights, and um,
1: dialogue. We are treated like animals. We are not treated like human beings. We have been displaced here, internally displaced people. You see people living in their houses where there is no roof. I heard those things in the northern. I never knew it would come to me.
3: What they did was made sure that they called out both sides. It was reintroduced this Congress it was followed up with the CODEL, where they actually messaged the same thing you know, to all members of the government, to you know, the population, met with folks in the country to hear from them from all over. Um, you know, People have actually you know, hit us hard and asked, why didn't we go to those regions? Obviously members of Congress cannot go to those regions. But people did travel um, to Yaoundé to meet with the delegation. And so you know, they did hear directly. Um, that bill has since passed the House. It is now up to the Senate to deal with it. Um, most recently, you may have seen this on Twitter, um, the, m- the members of the CODEL wrote a letter to President Bia where they raised the issues again, because how do you keep the pressure on? And so ultimately, uh, not only did they reiterate that the situation has not changed, but they said, you know, we're going to probably have to take a look at uh, our foreign assistance and our policies towards Cameroon. And, you know, it's not easy. The big issue is that there's a great deal of violence happening in the country and a
0: lot of human rights abuses. It's incredibly troubling, the human devastation. It doesn't seem to be getting any better. Uh, Ken, you wrote a piece in Foreign Policy about Cameroon with Claire Hasben, and you argue that the government needs to make some concessions and it needs to seriously engage with the Anglophone proposals on ending the crisis. December, after you published it, there was an autonomy bill uh, which said that the Anglophones could control education, control justice policies, but I'm not sure that that's enough. So what's your current thinking on Cameron? Yeah, um, uh, Claire and I will
1: not claim to have influenced the uh, the passage of the bill, <laughs> but um, I don't think it's enough. I think that BIA's initial reaction to the crisis, you know, using the state very forcefully, has polarized the public opinion uh, in the northwest and southwest, uh, and and sort of rekindled feelings that have persisted since independence uh, about you know the abolition of federation and marginalization of Anglophones more generally. I think that there's there's really not much movement that I foresee happening as long as B.A. is in power. I, I, I think that, you know, uh, we are sort of stuck in this position partly because of the gradual erosion of democracy in
0: Cameroon since, you know, that brief moment in 92 when it seemed like things could open up. Is anyone, I'll just open this up, is anyone surprised by the lack of engagement by the region in Cameroon? I mean, the U.S., particularly our Congress, but also executive branches, has sort of uh, issued statements. And we uh, retracted Goa, uh, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, trade privileges, and restricted some military assistance. France, the Swiss have been engaged. But, you know, we're not hearing much from the region about a crisis that I think truly does affect um, the sub-region. Surprise, no Surprise. Uh, not completely surprised
1: because uh, Cameroon is in the Central African region, which has the weakest sub-regional entity in all of Africa, right? So you could imagine had it been in ECOWAS, ECOWAS would have done a bit more. Uh, or you know even the East African community, even Sadak, you know, says things and tries to do things uh, sometimes.
3: But I think the problem here is that it doesn't have to just be solely in that region. I do think that there are others on the continent that really should... You know, sort of step in and really try to deal with this conflict. We get very concerned about what's happening and. And by the lack of attention, because in some in some ways, I mean, some can call it maybe a low level conflict, but at some point it may not be. Um, or people may, you know, these regional conflicts can become larger than what they are and spill over borders. And when it ends up in Douala or Yaounde, then then it will be a bigger problem. So I think that there's an opportunity now. Um, and, it, and it does make me think about, you know, sort of our broader policy. Um, and maybe we do need to engage other countries and other heads of state.
0: Yeah, maybe a good thing to add to the to-do list for Ramaphosa as he takes over the African Union.
1: It's the first full plenary session of the House of Representatives as they return from recess. Uh, honorable colleagues, I'm delighted the speaker to- Speaker reads out some of the letters from president Muhammad Buhari, which had been sent while the house was on recess.
0: Let's move on to our, our big paradigm for today, which we're going to talk about Ken's book on African legislatures. And this is a hundred percent true. Ken, I really enjoyed your book. My only complaint was that I had to read it so fast to prepare for this, uh, podcast, I was hoping that you could just summarize some of the key takeaways from your research.
1: Yeah, so uh, thank you for that wonderful endorsement of the book, and thank you for taking the time to read it. Yeah, so I I would, I would say that you know the book has four main takeaways. Uh, one, this is more academic. Our theories of legislative development are uh, often informed by the evolution of legislatures in the North Atlantic, and they typically don't apply to post-colonial states whose legislatures evolve under the shadow of much stronger uh, presidents. And so uh, the book shows that, you know, even when presidents are, are relatively more powerful, legislatures still have scope to grow depending on what role they play within that institutional architecture. Um, second is you know a straightforward uh, uh, point that we we often don't take seriously, and that is institutional development takes time, and legislatures are no different. And so you know the best time to start strengthening a legislature is yesterday uh, or thirty years ago. Uh, so you know we should we should always have that in mind whenever we're engaging with legislatures. It's a long game; it takes forever uh, to congeal. The Third point is that you know, and this is narrowing down now to the case of Africa. Uh, I, th- I think for a long time, African politics has been characterized as you know purely presidential politics, right? You know, African elections, whenever we talk about them, it's all it's always about the presidency. Uh, the big man, uh, African president, is is very dominant in our psyche. Uh, and I think the book makes the case that uh, even in places with very powerful presidents, legislatures still played a very important role in uh, incorporating elites into the system, in managing the sharing of power and governance rents, et cetera. Uh, and then lastly, uh, an important takeaway in the book is that uh, strengthening legislatures ought to go beyond technical and operational interventions, uh, right? I make the case that uh you know a strong legislature necessarily needs uh you know strong legislators uh so members must be politically powerful with a high chance of reelection uh so that they can have incentives to invest in the institution uh and its systems for the long haul
0: I think that the book really helps us reframe how to how we should think about legislatures in a political system. I thought that was one of its best contributions, and uh, I think when you read Ken's book, you walk away sort of surprised at the strength of many legislatures, even in autocratic systems, as, as you say in the book, sort of this arena for intra-elite bargaining and competition. So I think that's one of its strong contributions in my view. Now, I'm going to recommend that folks listen to Ken's interview on uh, our sister podcast, uh, Ufuhama Africa, led by uh, Kim Dion and Rachel Reed, where You kind of go into more of the, the academic uh, underpinnings of your book. But for our show, since we do more policy, I want to kind of zoom in there. And you say that investments in technical capacity, you know, record keeping and research and procedures are positive, but insufficient without political empowerment. And that's The question that I'd like you to work through is, how do we promote political independence? Because it's it's a very difficult act for us to do. Since the book's been published, what are the ways you've been thinking about how you can make that actionable?
1: So, um, yes, you're right that, you know, you know to, to cut the chase it's it's the what I'm advocating for is that you know we need higher re-election rates for members of parliament so that we don't have amateur legislatures with extremely high turnover rates right so if you look across Africa on average 60 percent of legislatures uh, legislators don't get re-elected Right, that means that you know, in every with every new parliament or legislature, you have uh, basically uh, you know freshman uh, legislators, uh, which makes it very hard to balance the president to know the executive well enough to uh, keep it in check, et cetera. Uh, I think one way to do this would be uh, a roundabout way that's not overtly political would be to think of ways to. Uh, make the political market work. That is, make legislators more effective in engaging their citizens uh, and and providing the public goods and services that the citizens need. Uh, the other thing would be to strengthen frontline bureaucracies that provide public goods and services. So, if if I'm a you know if if if, if donors uh, focus a lot more effort in making public the delivery of public services more effective. Uh, and tie those to the political system, so that if you're funding healthcare uh, in Kenya, for for instance, don't do it off budget. Do it through parliament. Make sure that the legislature is fully involved in the process of reforming the health sector. Uh, if you're reforming uh, the education sector, channel it, you know, through the legislature. Uh, even even in things like security right if you're funding security assistance you know this may seem controversial but i think that it's key to focus uh, on legislature channel it through the legislature so that whatever happens is backed by uh, the institution, and that forces everyone involved, including presidents, to deal with the political realities on the ground. and I know that you know everyone loves institutions, and still you you ask them to work through them. But if we really care about institutions, this is this is the only way to
0: go you are you're preaching to the choir. I mean, one of the things that I thought was, the challenge of the last administration is that we said we don't want strongmen, we want strong institutions. But gosh, when it came down to an issue you just had to drive through, that men ended up being very helpful. And I think so we didn't sort of, we didn't walk the talk. The cool thing about today is that Jeanette is in the legislature and Tyler has this experience in the executive branch. So I thought it'd be a great way to sort of stress test some of Ken's ideas. So. Jeanette, the history, there's a great history of our legislature, our Congress, working with African counterparts. And it would be helpful to hear what you think has worked and maybe not worked. And and what do we do with Ken's recommendations to make the political market work or to work through the frontline bureaucracy?
3: Sure. Um, so to first pick up on the point you just made about sort of walking the talk, you know, I do think that your that Ken's contributions are that, you know, we have these concrete sort of theoretical and empirical examples so we can kind of i mean hone in and say well this is what could work right because we've got the some some of the data there In terms of what's worked and what's not worked, so there's a House democracy partnership that's engaged in some countries. Um, So far, they've engaged in in Kenya, Liberia, Ethiopia, and the Gambia. And that's where they've taken members of Congress and congressional staff to these countries. And these have not been one-off. There's a great deal of consistency rather than discontinuity when— Um, A regime is changing from autocratic to and transitioning to a democracy. Um, And so to me, um, it makes me think that we need to really be investing and spending time on on the legislatures, um, you know, really thinking that through. You also talk about those procedural things. And so it shouldn't just be technical and procedural. But the thing is, um, drafting, you know, legislation, passing legislation, um, researching, developing coalitions. Um, you know, debating, all of that that is sort of like flexing that muscle, you know, is what is is something that's important. And doing that under these autocratic, you know, rather than that sort of winner-takes-all continual politics, you know, with the presidency, I think is important and will put countries in a better place. Um, you know, getting back to Cameroon, you know, I know that the opposition is will, is planning on boycotting local and parliamentary elections. I mean, that is an important moment, Absolutely. you know. I, I I wish I could tell them, you know, don't do that. You know, maybe there'd be a groundswell. Again, I'm not really, really familiar with the parliamentary system there, but I I do think that that is a check on on the executive branch.
0: Ken, do you want to encourage the Cameroonian opposition Anglophones to participate in this legislative election? Yes. I think one of the concrete examples that I can think of is, you know, if, if the
1: Zambian opposition had not boycotted the '96 election, I think Zambia would have turned out differently than than it than it is now. Uh, they would have provided stronger checks to Chiluba, and maybe he wouldn't have attempted uh, uh, to remove term limits like he did in 2001, and you know put Zambia on a different track. Uh, I'd really like to emphasize the point about you know the procedure is not irrelevant, right? Uh, the legislature, like any institution, is like a muscle. So the more you use it, the more powerful it gets. Uh, so because even the the mere fact that, you know, once you've established a custom that the budget takes three months and it has specific procedures, that alone begins to constrain the powers of the president. And so investing in procedure uh, is, is is part and parcel of the legislative strengthening process.
0: So I'm going to turn to Tyler. Tyler and I were on uh, the NSC staff together. And I think Tyler deserves a lot of credit for really trying to think about how how we push democracy and governance issues in the Obama administration towards Africa. And maybe it would be useful, Tyler, to share your thinking on the role of the U.S. executive branch in this. I mean, Jeanette was talking about um, the legislative side of it, but there's probably a role for us as well in the executive branch. I'm still saying us, like I'm in government. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, absolutely, thanks. And I think uh, you know I, I'm in violent agreement with most of of what Jeanette and Ken have said so far. I think you know we've learned a lot about how to how to work with legislatures better as the United States, and I think it starts first with a dose of humility and sort of recognizing that there are political and economic factors that drive. You know the the, the decision making process for for legislators that are much much different than you know a, a sort of short term aid program or a legislative strengthening program, and it's important for us to understand that. I think Ken's work, you know, really shows that historical legacies, organizational independence, regime types, and turnover rates really play a, a role in sort of determining how effective a legislature can be, and it's important to take that into context and understand. The domestic political and economic drivers that that sort of push people, push policymakers into uh, different positions, and then to work within that structure to be, you know, as effective as possible. And I think some of the ways that you do that are to not just, you know, support you know, the the procedural aspects of of lawmaking, but to also, you know, take a partnership approach to a lot of our legislative engagements, right? Working with issue-based coalitions that involve legislatures, that involve civil society, that involve the private sector and create that sort of virtuous cycle of of interests that are pushing in a specific direction. You can see good results when that happens. I think the other sort of important point on this, and I would sort of footstomp a, a point that Ken made about seeing the system as a whole. Um, I think it's really important if we're if the U.S. is serious about self reliance and promoting self reliance in a lot of these countries. Getting into the unsexy business of taxation is is hugely important. Another one is in the defense sector, right? I mean, as you sort of alluded to, Judd, we do a lot of work with African armies, but we don't do as much work with the civilian oversight functions, both in the executive and in the legislature that, you know, really are, are supposed to govern the conduct of, of those armies. You know, one issue that really concerns me is on the whole issue of emerging technologies and adoption of technologies and the legislative frameworks in which those technologies are rolled out, right? I mean, you've seen... You know, Kenya is experiencing this right now with the whole digital ID system, where the High Court just struck down the the implementation of the national ID registration because of very valid concerns over over privacy and over exclusion and some other things. So, in states that are you know sort of leaning authoritarian, um, this could you know present some some major obstacles and and you know uh, you could start to see some real challenges around around privacy, around around access to data, or around surveillance that. In the absence of a sort of strong legislative structure around that, or rules governing the the, the use of these types of technologies, you know you could you could see states instead of leapfrogging to development, leapfrogging to authoritarianism in a very real way.
0: Those are really important points. It seems to me, you know every time I talk to a diplomat or someone who is sort of focused on a particularly difficult issue in an African country, I invariably will say, well, what's the Legislative Oversight Committee doing? And, you know, you get a lot of, it's not worth our time. Those guys don't have any influence. And that's, I think, symptomatic of this problem. If we're not treating this seriously, if not, we're bringing the legislature into this conversation, then all you're doing is reinforcing the power of the executive branch or the ministry or the military. And so I I don't know, Ken, you can react to that if you've got something else that you want to get off your chest, but I want to make sure that you have the parting shot.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think it's kind of like self-reinforcing reality that because we don't take them seriously, they don't think that they're serious players uh, in the game. And so, you know, you can imagine that if, say, uh, the U.S. government, uh, you know, the DOD would never sign any agreement with an African military without the approval of the relevant committee in parliament, right? If, if that becomes a rule, then suddenly, you know, the generals will care what the parliamentarians say and will start to take them seriously. Or if the IMF, you know, would never sign a, a deal with the treasury uh, without the budget committee uh, giving an okay, right? Then the, yes, it may jam up the process, but you know, uh, that's democracy, right? Democracy is supposed to uh, take in as many views as possible. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm definitely for the idea of thinking about how to include legislatures in the process of policymaking and policy implementation um, and, and and knowing that, you know, the, the slowing down of these processes is a feature and not a bug uh, uh, of the system.
0: I think that investing in institutions is about strategic patience, and I think we have to follow what we say. Please join us next week for our first live taping of Into Africa at the George Washington University. We're going to be talking about the future of African studies programs, what Ramaphosa is going to do at the African Union, and an update on Guinea. We'll be at GW at 9 a.m. on February 14th. See you there. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at CSIS.org Africa. Thanks.